marriage, a vow of love and intimacy till our dying breath. Our weddings are moments most of us remember fondly, the time when we took that final step of commitment to honor and cherish someone else as long as you both shall live. For most of us, it was a long time coming. You meet, you flirt, someone asks the other on the first date, you connect, you bond, share a million memories, and finally, the question is asked, will you marry me? That's our story. At least, it is for most of us. But that's not always how it went. As weird as it seems sometimes, there was a time when we didn't date our future spouse. It seems archaic to some, like the telegraph or a horse-strong buggy, but arranged marriages used to be the norm. And for many, it still is. As weird as it seems, there are still plenty of people today who are happily married despite not having that long dating relationship we think is so essential. Is it possible we have some things about marriage wrong? What can we learn from this seemingly long-lost tradition? Maybe those in arranged marriages might have a lot to say that we need to hear. On today's episode, we ask, what can we learn from arranged marriages? And of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, I promise to love you unconditionally, to support you in your goals, to honor you, to laugh with you, and cry with you, and to cherish you for as long as we both shall live. Thanks be to God. And welcome to another episode of Spiritually Incorrect. On this week's episode, we have international love, what's wrong with Western romance, and why I just made the sappiest intro I will ever make. I'm your host, Seth Hart. Joined with me is Jonathan Lionheart. Love, 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 nothing you can do that can't be done. You know, I'm just happy it wasn't howdy. Is something at least a little bit more substantial than that this time? I'm trying to I'm trying to keep it real. Going with the Beatles. It's always a good classic. I can't imagine how many songs Madison had to put up with when you guys were dating. Well, I'm feeling the romance today. I'm I, I love this episode and this topic. And yeah, Madison had to put up with tons of songs for me because I was a sappy romantic when we got married. Uh I'm not anymore. Children have slaughtered me. Uh, but it'll it'll bounce back. Give me a few years and I'll be singing the Beatles at her window again. Just just let me recover from toddlers and I'll be back. I was going to say, it's good to know that you're still keeping the feelings alive, but apparently not. Because <laughs> I was <laughs> there for your early relationship. I know the romance. In fact, well, why don't you tell us? Tell the audience. They have no idea how you well, guys this was, met. Well, this was something of an arranged marriage. So I asked out Seth's sister, Madison. 
And she said, no. But then about a year passed and I grew up a bit and Seth bugged her about going out with me mercilessly because me and Seth were friends and he wanted me to be his brother-in-law. And so her whole family started to bug her about it because, you know, she was one of the only people in her friend group who hadn't gotten married. And they were all like, what about Jonathan? He asked you out. You said no, but what about Jonathan? And so the whole family was on my side arranging this marriage until finally she gave You're in. You're welcome. And she, she called me and said, all right, let's 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 go out. I like you now. And so we started dating, but it was long distance. Then I surprised her one day with a romantic proposal. She thought she was going to this banquet at a church that she'd been invited to. But surprise, surprise, she pulled up. There was no banquet. I arranged the whole thing. And inside there were rose petals and music and dinner and drinks and waiters. And it was just her and me. And I proposed. And then we got married. And it was beautiful, Seth. It was beautiful. And how long did you guys date? I don't want to answer that right now. Three and a half months. To be fair, though, we had been days. We had been close. We had been close friends for almost five years at that point. And we didn't get married until about a year after that. So after we started dating. So you got married six months after that. You proposed in like December. I rounded, I rounded up to a year, Seth. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but it, you're right. It was, I, I feel like we knew each other quite well, but we also didn't need those three, four, five years of dating and living together beforehand. And, and I suppose that wasn't terribly Western of us. It's so romantic. That's nearly as romantic as my relationship, but not quite. Well, your your relationship, you you were scorned. You were tired of love and ready to give up. And then what happened? Oh, yes. So I gave up dating and then I sat on a plane going home for Thanksgiving. And I was just like, I'm taking a break from dating. And I look up and literally a girl walking down the aisle, really good looking girl coming down, smiles at me. And I my first thought of my future spouse is that's a demon. That's a devil trying a t- to temptress. keep me. Yeah, a temptress trying to keep me away from the good and noble path that the Lord has planned for me. So I tried ignoring her at first and actually put in my headphones and pulled out a book the moment I saw her, thinking this will give her the message that I don't want to talk. Little did I know that this was part of God's providential plan to make this happen, because the moment she saw that, she goes, oh, challenge accepted. God works for demons. God, yeah. God, God, he uses demons. He what made you, didn't evil, he? he? Oh, okay, that was unnecessary. Anyways, you're, you're silly. You're, why did your wife like you? She, she pursued you. What happened? Yes, okay, so a stewardess comes by. My tray table was down, so she had to alert me to the imminent demise of everyone on board for my tray table to remain down. But that was enough to get my headphones off of me, and which I saw her head pop in and go, hi, and... <laughs> She saw an game opening. over game over. Yeah. And 13 months after that, it was the day I proposed. So see, mine's even though I got engaged sooner than you, I'd known Madison way longer. We'd been close friends for years. Mine is so much more mature than yours. yours. Oh, now is it? I was we were also older, John. So just like with my parents, the older it is, the less time it takes. You don't age like a fine wine, Seth. You're like McDonald's French I started fries. as a you just fine sit wine. There Look at me. Not Look decomposing. At me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm perfect as is. You know how popular <laughs> McDonald's is? Well, that's that's a good point. Okay, enough of us. Tell us about our guest today, John. Well, our guest today is Shireen Joseph. She's a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. She wrote a Christianity Today article called Love Lessons from an Arranged Marriage, where she talked about 
her arranged marriage to her husband, which she had been in at that point around 20 years. She talked about the highs, the lows, the lessons. And Seth and I saw this article and thought she would be great to get on the podcast and keep a lookout for her upcoming podcast where she talks about what it's like to be a third culture Indian who moved to the United States and what it's been like having an arranged marriage in a country where romance and autonomy and dating have been all the rage. She has a lot of interesting, unique perspective to add to those conversations. Yeah, check that out. It should be out in August or September is what she's saying. So here in just a few months. But with that, let's go ahead and jump into the interview. Thank you for joining us, Shireen. Could you maybe start by walking us through the events leading to your wedding? What was kind of that initial process of your family finding, approving, arranging a match, and what your role and agency in that was? Yeah, I had graduated from grad school. And basically, at that time, 22 years ago, usually when the girl is about to finish college and about to get a first job, that's when the parents start to look out for a suitable boy. So I had I had finished, I had graduated, I was um, working, staying in a flat, my folks owned that flat and staying with some friends and working in IT marketing. There were offers that were starting to come in. There was an offer that had come in when I was in grad school itself. He was actually a professor in in the school, but he was he was a young, I mean, he had just finished his his master's. And so he was a teacher. That family was very, very keen. And I just didn't want to make a decision when I was still studying for finals to graduate. I told my mom and dad, you know, I, I can't think about this now because I really need to pass my exams. And so that was, that didn't work out. And then moved back to my parents' house, was working. And my uncle and aunt on my dad's side were very good friends with their older daughter's in-laws, you know, so they had a a daughter who was much older. And this other family knew my in-laws really well. They all came from the same town. So common friends, mutual work acquaintances. And so somebody in my husband's hometown, they told my uncle and aunt, hey, you know, we know this family and they've got three sons. And the oldest one, he's about 26. And so they're starting to look out for him. Do you know someone in your family? And my my uncle was like, yes, my niece, you know, she's graduated, she's she's working, she has an MBA. You should you should talk to them. And so back in the days they wrote letters, you know, and they had long distance phone calls. And so calls were made and my uncle and aunt and my mom and dad, they fixed a time for all the families to meet each other, the parents, just the parents. So my folks and my uncle and aunt went to Joe's uh, hometown. It's an overnight train journey and they got to meet them. They got to connect with them, have tea, coffee. Joe happened to be there. He was on, on his Christmas vacation. And so he was there. So they got to they got to meet him and visit with him. Incidentally, they also found out that my grandmother and Joe's grandmother are actually cousins thrice removed. And the families had lost contact over the last 50 to 60 years because they had moved to different towns and grown up. But they discovered they had common family. And my parents really liked him. And so the following month, he came to visit me. He came to our house in India and he brought, he came with his dad and with an aunt of this. And we had tea and he, he took me out for ice cream. We, we went out for ice cream. And I remember saying things that, that seemed really smart and witty at that time. <laughs> Looking back on it now, it's kind of, cringy 
I, I told him I, I wouldn't pick up your dry cleaning and, you know, I, I, I won't do all these kind of chores. You have to be responsible for them. After this episode, I'm going to go drop off the dry cleaning. It's sitting at my kitchen door in a laundry basket because I'm the one who does all the dry cleaning. And if I didn't take it to the, to the cleaners, he would have no shirts to wear. And so we went out for coffee and we came back and then, yeah, and the next day, it was a Saturday and the next day was a Sunday. We were getting ready for church and around seven o'clock, the phone rings and is my cousin because we gave my cousins, my uncle's phone number as a point of contact. And the family basically called and said, the boy likes the girl. Could you let the girl know that? And so my, my mom came to me and I was lying in bed half asleep and she's like, well, the boy said yes what are we going to say? And I was like, okay, yes, I think. And that was it. We said yes. And then I went to church and my uncle and aunt, my cousins were all super happy that this was kind of fixed. And I think you'd asked me if I had agency to say yes or no. I absolutely did. I could have said no if I wanted to, but the families got on really, really well. There was a lot of similarity in our backgrounds. We're from the same caste. We're from the same community. We're from the same denomination, which is the Church of South India. And he had a good job. He was well-educated. He made a decent salary, which was really the basic criteria for finding a suitable boy and a suitable girl. And there was really no reason for me to say no. So yeah, that's kind of how it happened. But on a funny note, I will tell you, he took me out for ice cream. And then after they left, he went to see another girl. He saw two girls in one day. <laughs> when did you find that out? Did, was, did you find that out at the time or like years later he admitted it? Uh, found that out after we, we said yes to each other and the families had made a formal like, okay. And then they planned an engagement date. So found that out maybe a week or so after everything. Because my folks went back to the Middle East. And then Joe and I would talk on the phone. So found it out in a couple of weeks. So you'll have to ask him why he picked me over her. So how many times had you actually met before the wedding? Um, we met a number of times. He traveled a lot for work. He was in marketing and sales. And so uh, part of the job was traveling. And he lived in a city called Bangalore. And I was in Chennai. And a lot of his clients were in Chennai. So he would come for meetings. He'd come for conferences to meet the clients. And so whenever he came for, like, if the conference was in a Thursday, Friday, he would extend and stay on a Saturday just to spend time. And so we'd, we'd go out for maybe lunch or dinner. I had a scooter at that time. So he'd come in a bus and I'd drive him around. So yeah, we met, I think we, would, we probably met once or twice every month or every other month. A few months before the wedding, he, he really insisted that I come to visit him in Bangalore because he had a lot of his close friends there and he wanted me to get a chance to meet all of them, his friends circle. And so I did take an, a night train and I went up to Bangalore and I, I spent a whole Saturday there. You know, I just met all of his friends. We went out for, I think we went for lunch and for dinner and then he put me back on the train. Neither of our parents knew about this visit that I made to Bangalore because they would not have been happy at all about it. You just don't stay overnight with a guy that you, though you're going to get married to him. And so we didn't tell them till at least 18, 19 years had passed. And they were like, what? And we were like, what? It's, it's 18 years. What, what is the point now? 
he actually insisted I come to visit his family for Easter weekend after the marriage was fixed, but his mom and dad were firmly against it. They were like, this, this does not happen. So we're not going to bring her here. God forbid if something goes wrong and then the, the engagement is called off. They were more concerned for my reputation. So yeah, we did, we did meet a number of times and talked on the phone for hours. What were the first few years of marriage like? Did you ever question the arranged marriage or even the entire institution? Yeah, I don't think I questioned the institution of arranged marriage as a whole in the first few years. Arranged marriages are, you know, they're, they're, kind of, they're kind of funny. You know, Joe traveled a lot for work. Like I said, he was in marketing. So in the first few months, six to seven months, he was gone quite a bit, at least. Back in those days, you couldn't just hop on and hop off flight. If you went, you stayed for seven or eight days and you came back the following weekend. Cell phones were not big, right, back then. So he traveled quite a bit. And so I kind of lived this single life. I was working part-time. I, I, I quit my job a few months after that. I, I got really sick. What was ingrained in me was how to be a really good homemaker. That was how my parents had raised me. So that was a duty that I was determined to follow through. So I was a good homemaker. You know, I, I cooked all the meals. I took care of the home, um, supervised the maids. I ran a good little one-bedroom apartment. You know, I, I took care of the family. You know, I did the laundry and did all of those things. And so I wasn't very ambitious in career and those kind of things. You know, I, I had an MBA. I was very good in marketing and sales, but I did not really focus on it that much. You know, I was perfectly content to be a wife and a stay-at-home mom or a homemaker. We didn't have too many problems in the first year, but we did conceive and I got pregnant within the first year and a half. And so our son was born when I was 24. And so we, we saw some struggles when I was pregnant because he really wanted me to have the baby in the town that we were staying in, in that city. And I really wanted to go be with my mom and dad because I was just terrified. You know, I was 23. I was pregnant. I didn't know how this thing, how, how to look after a baby. I don't know how to look after myself. And so we saw some tensions there. There was some stress, but you know, his parents were really supportive of me. And they basically told him, she needs to go be with her mother and her father. So you just need to let her go. You can go there for the delivery and see the baby. But they were very wise as to understand how I was feeling. Looking back on it now, so many years ago, I was a very anxious person. I guess I've always struggled with anxiety and with insecurity. I didn't really know where I stood in life. But at 23, I didn't know any of that. My upbringing and my formation was just, it was just wired to be this really good wife. And so I literally went from being a really good daughter to being a really good wife. And our culture, our community, the way that both of us were formed, it didn't prepare us for the challenges that a marriage faces. Because even though we were from the same caste and the same kind of upbringing, we were raised differently. I'm a single child. He is one of three, you know, so he was raised in a multi-generational home with grandparents and uncles and aunts. I grew up in a nuclear family and I'm also the product of two immigrants. So they were immigrants themselves. And so whatever, however, they raised me the best that they knew was not how he was raised. And so there was a lot of cultural clashes, which we didn't understand for the first 15 years almost. So we just had to wrestled through a lot of that. So 
I never questioned arranged marriage, but I did question why these two people, you know, I'm so different from him. He's so different from me. Should I have picked someone else? But those are like fleeting thoughts that come and go in the moment of an argument or when you're crying or, you know, and then we were parents by the third year, you're trying to keep this human being alive. And before we could get through the season of parenting him, we packed up and moved to the U.S. So there's another layer of complication that comes in because you're four years married, you have a you have a toddler, and then you're in a foreign country. So yeah, I don't think I questioned arranged marriage. I did question why me, Lord, for sure. Like, you know, could this be better if only he understood me better? If only I understood what he was thinking. We didn't have time to sit and pontificate on those things. We were in the trenches of parenting a little boy. We just kind of flew by the seat of our pants, trusting God. How have things changed over the course of the past few years? Do you still have those fleeting thoughts or have you been able to be able to get through the rough patches in the first few years? When I look back now, this July will be our 22nd wedding anniversary. So when I look back on who, who we were, yeah, we've come a long way. Yeah, when I look back on who we were, and I, I think we had a few friends over last week, and they saw a couple of the wedding pictures that I have displayed around the house. And I, each time I look at those pictures, there's a part of me that grieves for the, for the young girl in that picture. Because I look at 23-year-olds now, you know, in church, and when we meet them at college and everything, and they're so young. We just finished a premarital counseling session for a couple and they're 21 and 23. And after every session, Joe and I would talk about the material that we worked through them because we never did premarital counseling back in those days that didn't exist. And so we're working through this book with this couple. And of course, they're doing all the homework and we're just talking with them and helping them. But it was so good for both of us to kind of go through some of that material because we could go back and go, you know what? These were some of the things that I never realized about you. I never thought about that. And it's insane to see how far we have, how much we have grown. And I wish I could attribute it to, to life and circumstance and maturity. Maturity, yes. But I think a large part of it, or almost all of it, is really our growth in the knowledge of God. It is supernatural to see the way that we have changed. Like I said in that CT piece, somebody did mention to this to us in 2019. They actually said, you both look and sound different now. This was a close family member because we were always the kind of bickering couple. And I was anxious and scared and insecure. And I would not want to do certain things that he would tell me to do, like in a family gathering. And usually when you do that in a big family, if you know, if you have siblings, People kind of keep quiet and maybe they talk about it behind closed doors. Joe and I would often bicker in front of family members, you know, so I would be like, no, I want to do it like this. And he'd be like, no, we're going to do it this way because this is what we do. This is the expectation of our family. And I, I didn't like many of those things, but I would do them just because out of a sense of duty to honor him. And yes, I suppose that endeared me to the family members because they were like, okay, she doesn't like it, but she's still doing it. So she's a good girl who's trying very hard. And we kind of stopped doing that as time went by. I think we started to realize that, okay, let's just talk about this privately. And he started to understand where I was coming from. And just the dynamic between us was not so fraught with tension. It started to become more understanding. And so when people started to say that we could see it in the way that we behaved, 
we just realized that it, it is nothing but God's mercy and grace. Literally growing closer to God through our pain brought us closer to each other. So looking back now, it's crazy how far we've come. We feel very old on the inside. Was there certain lessons about marriage that you felt God was teaching you? Your, your thoughts on what marriage was and what the goal of marriage should be shifted in this time? Yeah, I think 2012, we were going through a pretty rough patch. And my husband traveled a lot for work. And so we kind of had these patches where we'd get into an argument and then he'd travel for three days and things would get better by the time he came back. I guess the distance helped us a little bit having that space because when he would call from California or wherever he was, having a phone conversation used to help us. And so 2012, I was in Bible study and somebody recommended Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. I had shared a prayer request, I think, in our table just to pray for peace at home. And so I picked up a copy of that book and really the the punchline of that book, you know, what if God intended marriage to make you holy instead of happy? That really, 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 really caught me because between 2012 summer and 2015 summer, a cousin of mine was actually going through a separation in her marriage. And so they were separated. They were in counseling. They were trying to go through a lot of, they were just struggling and walking alongside her to some extent, because I was in the US and she's in India. So I didn't really get to see her much, but we talked on the phone off and on and just hearing all the struggles that she was going through. I think it kind of opened up. It gave me a perspective that marriage is really hard. and. Sometimes when it gets overwhelming, it seems a little easier to let go. It's harder to hold it together and ask God, okay, we're really, really struggling, God. If this marriage is what you intended, you've got to give me some tools to get through, just to get through today. It might mean we've had a fight in the morning at eight. He's gone off to work. I'm dealing with the kids. There's chores. I just want to get it together by 6 p.m. so that we can salvage this day. And so this book, it really changed the perspective of what I thought because I wanted to be happy. You know, as far as I was concerned, I'm a good Christian. I'm a good human being. I'm a good daughter. I'm a good daughter-in-law. I'm a good sister-in-law. I'm a great mother. And I'm a good wife. I know I look after you. I cook. I clean. I take care of the house. I do everything. So why can't I just be happy? You know, if there's things that I want to do or I want to travel or, you know, we had we had issues over travel. We had issues over going back to India every summer for vacation. We had issues over a lot of things. We just didn't understand each other. We just didn't have the right tools to communicate with each other. And I think on some level, we weren't hearing each other's feelings and thoughts. We were just hearing the words, which made each of us get angrier at each other. Because he would say one thing, I'd view it in a different way. I'd fight over that. I'd say one thing, he'd be like, oh, you're just, you know, complaining all the time. And then I'd burst into tears and he'd feel bad. And I would think that if I cried, I'd get my way, but I wouldn't get my way. So it was just a mess. But between 2012 to 2015, not only did my cousin's marriage, it fell apart and they ended up getting divorced. We had another couple of friends whom we knew locally here who went through a divorce. And there were two of them who were much younger than us. They were young couples, probably in their late 20s. And I think all of that just made me take a step back and go, okay, people just seem to be walking away from each other fairly easily. And so I've got to find a way to hold it all together. And that book really made me think twice about, this is more of a discipleship tool 
God intends for us to become more like him in the process of being married to another person because your true self is revealed and your true self is pretty ugly on the inside. It's selfish and it's ugly and you want what you want. But marriage is really about thinking about someone else. And if it really is intended to make us holy, then how am I becoming holier in the process? Because all I'm concerned about is making myself happy. So I actually prayed. I, I think there was one really bad day where we were crying and fighting and I was sitting in the master bedroom and I, I literally just cried and said, okay, God, you've got to tell me how I can use this as a tool to make me more like you and not about my own selfish needs. I, I still want to be happy because I'm human. I don't want to be sad all the time, but I, I need to figure this out because this is our life is not happy. Our kids are not very happy. So what am I supposed to do, God? I've got nowhere else to go. And the reality also was I couldn't exactly go to our family members. They were far away and I just didn't have anybody to go to. 2012 was kind of a reckoning period. We still struggled for a few more years. And there was one day where I have a little step stool in my kitchen where I usually sit and read when there's things on the stove. And that's where I do a lot of my praying as well. And we had a really bad fight in the morning and I, I texted a bunch of my my girlfriends and I, I texted them saying we had a really bad fight and what what would you guys do if we decided to get divorced, you know? And I was like, can I still keep all of you, you know, because you're my friends. <laughs> and God bless my friends. They're some of my closest friends. They texted back and said, um, you don't get to keep us if the two of you don't stay together. And divorce is not an option. We are not just for you, but we are for you and Joe. So it's going to be okay. We'll pray with you and it'll be fine. But we're for both of you. We're not going to pick one of you over the other. And that actually made me like, they don't want to stick with me. (laughs) They're being nice to him also. But I think that was the season where it really started to shift for me. Can I ask a question about the family dynamic in India? You said the family was far away, but at the same time, it also seems like the Indian concept of family is a lot more close-knit than it is in the West. Mm-hmm. How does marriage change that? How involved are families in marriage for an Indian culture? I think if we had lived in India, they would have probably seen some of the struggles that we were having. But we live here, and we only really saw them four weeks of a year. My parents lived in the Middle East. And like I said in the beginning, for a decade in the middle, I had a challenging relationship with my mom. It was a very strained mother-daughter. And we've come way far now. We're so much more healthier, you know. But as a single child, I think she really struggled to let go of me because we had so much of tension between the two of us. She wasn't really someone that I could run to and say we're having a bad day, you know, can you give me some advice? I was a little bit more of an emotional support for her versus the other way around, which complicates things because I'm, I'm still a child and I wanted her advice, but it was, it was topsy-turvy. So I couldn't really go to her. I found it very awkward to go to my in-laws. I know that they love me. I know that they love me very unconditionally and they are really good, godly people. And if there's anything that I've learned about the power of prayer, I've learned it from first my dad and second, my mother-in-law, that prayer changes things. You know, you need to wrestle with God in prayer and you can pour out whatever your heart has in ugly ways and he will listen. 
and he might not answer it the way that you want it to be answered, but he does hear and not one of my tears is wasted when it's in the presence of God. So I'm very clear on that, but I couldn't really go to my in-laws and tell them like, this is, this is how I feel. Your son is not being very kind to me. It was more of this process where we would sometimes get into a fight and then the following day, you know, he would call his parents and, you know, he'd be talking about general stuff, but he'd kind of share a little bit about what we're going through and he'd get these impromptu counseling sessions from his mom and dad where they'd kind of advise him and, you know, think about it from her, her perspective. And they were very generous and loving in the way that they would counsel him, you know, not for him and against me, but for us as a unit. and so. He had quite a bit of their input and guide. They were and have never been interfering in laws. If anything, they are very, this is your family. You got to do what you, what you got to do. But always text us if you need prayer. You know, we will pray and we will encourage. So I, I truly have really, I'm blessed with really good in-laws. I know a lot of Indian families struggle with that relationship, Christian or non-Christian, but my in-laws are very good people and they love their sons and they love they love their daughters-in-law as if they were their daughters. I think in times are changing. 20 years ago there were Indian families where parents and in-laws can be interfering in some ways in things like finance, you know, money, telling you how to spend your money, telling you where you need to buy an apartment or you know where you need to send your kids to school. I think times have changed quite a bit because people have realized that that doesn't really help or benefit anyone. People are doing better. We did not have any of those problems. Nobody tried to tell us how to live our lives. They didn't really intrude much. And so I think the distance also helped. I can't say how life would have been if we had stayed in India, because I, I do know that when we lived in India and our son was born, he was the first grandchild on both sides. Both sets of parents would come every two months to visit the baby. You know, they'd come and they'd stay for a weekend. And so they were constantly in and out of our lives at that point. My parents especially were very involved because I'm their only child. At least my in-laws have three. So my folks were really more involved. I think leaving India for the United States gave us an opportunity to depend on God and each other a little bit more than depending on our family, which in hindsight might have been a little detrimental. That's kind of how it worked for us. Is there anything you've envied about unarranged marriages? And in turn, what have other people seemed to envy about your marriage? I haven't heard too many people envying an arranged marriage. I think a lot of people are watching the Netflix show Indian Matchmaking now, and they're like, oh, this looks interesting, you know, to have someone do all the hard work of finding partners. I think what I've envied about the Western style of falling in love and dating is you guys sometimes go into it with a little bit of history. You know, you can talk about your first date, you can talk about maybe something went really wrong on the first date, like the car broke down or you got food poisoning or, you know, maybe you met, you married your best friend's sister because you, you met her at a barbecue and, you know, that, that's how the friendship develops. So I think what, if I, if, if I envy something, it's probably that a little bit of history and those fun stories that you can tell people. We don't necessarily have too many of those stories. I think that was the time that I went to visit him in Bangalore without our parents' knowledge. We had Pizza Hut for dinner before I caught my train. And I love spicy food. So I had ordered the spicy Indian style pizza. And Joe is not a big fan of spicy food. I mean, he can handle flavor, but not heat. 
And so this pizza came with green chilies in it. And he started crying. His eyes were tearing up. And he just, they were bringing the tissue paper to wipe his nose. And he finally had to get sugar packets and stick them in his mouth and get cold water to quench the spice. So that's kind of the only funny story that we have. Because a month after that, we got married. So I think I envy a little bit of that history and that dating and the fun stories. And yeah, I mean, I don't know any other world apart from an arranged marriage. The majority of people that I know, my family, our generation is an arranged marriage. So I don't necessarily know any other. Yeah, I think those those are probably the only things that I really do envy. Maybe a chance to get to know each other in a more casual setting because you're hanging out with friends, you know, you're maybe a college sweetheart, you're doing life together, those kind of things. We kind of went into it as two strangers. And so you automatically are adults when you get married, you know, like even though you're 23 and 27, you're, there's groceries, there's bills to be paid. You, you kind of get into this adulthood where you're not quite ready to be there, but you are. I think that's probably what I would envy. I really liked when you said the purpose of marriage is about holiness and not happiness. And if I could jump back mm -hmm. to that, I just want to ask mm -hmm. and ask you to maybe elaborate. What do you think the purpose of marriage is? I think for us and for me in particular, Joel would he would agree with me on this. In the last four years, we have come to an understanding or a realization that our marriage has really been a tool of discipleship for us. It has taught us so much about how frail we are as individuals and how selfish we are as individuals. I mean, no matter how good of a person we can be doing good things, we're pretty selfish when it comes to our needs. And it has been a process of really refining. God has refined us through our marriage to to make us more and more like him. So I I really do believe the the purpose of marriage is to be is to make you holy versus making you happy. Happiness is secondary. God doesn't want us to be unhappy necessarily, but there are a lot of marriages where people are, you know, walking alongside a chronic illness or a person who is battling cancer and other struggles. And those are not necessarily deliriously happy situations, but I think they find deep joy and contentment in the life that they have. And they glorify God through the life that they live. I think it was Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He First chapter, he says, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die first. So, you know, we, everyone wants to get to heaven at some point, but there is this constant dying to self. And I think when you are called to die to self, whether it's in marriage or other areas of our life, you're thinking of yourself a little bit lesser and you're putting the other person first. So there's this constant pattern of mutual submission. You know, I kind of view it like this kind of a dance. And way back a few years ago, when I was in seminary, we spoke about the Trinity, you know, how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit kind of are in this mutual submission to each other. And there's this mutual dance that takes place. And so I liken a healthy marriage to that, where that kind of happens constantly. And the only way it can happen constantly is if we are continually aware of the presence of God. And that is hypercognizant in our hearts and in our brains. So I have really viewed marriage as a very strong discipleship tool through which God is refining us more and more to make us more Christ-like. Is it good to have classes for marriage like, you know, where you teach communication tools or you teach people how to have 
healthy words to use with each other, to create time out, like time for each other and express your feelings. All that is really, really great. It's all good resources to have in a marriage toolbox, so to speak. But I think the overarching thing is that both partners need to be growing individually in their walk with God. And the more and more they do that, you're automatically getting closer to each other and closer to God. And as I've gotten older, I've started to realize that a lot more. You were talking about staying with the marriage, not primarily for happiness, but for holiness. Are there limits to that uh, situations where unhappiness gets to a certain point or even abuse? I know you talked about mm -hmm. this in your Christianity Today article yeah. where you know a divorce would be an option because you said your friend yeah. said divorce isn't an option. What's, what's the yeah. sort of boundaries to this? We've seen it firsthand through friends and family back home. I'm not advocating anyone to stay in a marriage where there is physical abuse of any kind, you know, or alcohol abuse or any, any one of those things where if your life is in danger, yours or the children, I absolutely think that there is cause for separation. If the person is not willing to get into counseling or some form of therapy to get better and they're just not growing with God. You know, there are obviously places where God has made the provisions where divorce is acceptable. And so I do have friends who've been in abusive marriages where they've tried hard for years to stay separated and they've tried to make it work. But after a few years, it just doesn't work. You know, there you don't know what to do. And so we have people in our family where there's been infidelity. One partner has walked away, abandoned his his wife and his kids and and if they have gone for years on end and they're not going to come back, I don't believe that you're required to stay in that and hold on to some kind of a lark that they're going to come back at some point. I do believe that God has grace. He has compassion for those who are wounded and wounding. I know that he's going to make things right when his kingdom comes. So for us, it wasn't like that. For us, it was it was just two very different people. My husband often shares this in group discussions and stuff. There is a verse in the Bible which says, do not be yoked to an unbeliever. Something which he shares is that even though he was raised in a Christian home, you know, he was raised by believing parents and grandparents. He grew up going to church, going to Sunday school, singing in the choir. He thinks he was more of a cultural Christian. Like he did it because it was what everybody did on a Sunday morning. You go to church, you sing in the choir, and then you come back home. He didn't live like a Christian. His walk with God was not his personal walk with God. And he would tell you that he probably did not really come to that awareness that he wasn't a Christian in the true sense of the word until much later in his life. He often says that we were kind of unequally yoked because even though my faith was very young and a fledgling faith, because I had also grown up in a Christian home, my faith was stronger than his. And for a, a long time, because I didn't have anybody to talk to about the problems that we were facing, and I didn't have any encouragement or mentorship, all I really did was pray. I would pray and I would journal and I would kind of ask God, tell me what I can do to be the kind of wife that he needs. Because I don't understand what he's saying. And so I, I kind of need this supernatural, like this epiphany, like, you know, tell me what to do that, you know, I can, I can be that. So he would say that we were unequally yoked for a very long time. And we discovered through the pandemic, you know, he's like, he, he does a lot of Bible study and he reads and stuff. And so we, we discovered that 
And he, he would find it funny because he would come to me and he'd be like, I just feel so much compassion for you. And I feel, you know, I, I feel so bad if I hurt you or I say mean things because God is convicting me so deeply that I shouldn't hurt you. And I'd be like, yes, all my prayers are being answered after all these years, you know, because <laughs> God is really um, working in you. And it's been amazing to see the way that he has grown in the knowledge of God. Because I've seen him for 22 years kind of change from a 27-year-old young man to, you know, in his late 40s now. His faith has grown so exponentially that when I see him and when I hear him talking about spiritual things and mentoring others, I'm like, wow, God, this is, this is really a God thing. So I think for us, it wasn't any kind of an abusive situation. It was really people who were so different. Our formation was very different. And so we had to figure it out for our, how we're going to go together. And so we, we were formed by very two different backgrounds. And so if there's a person who's in any kind of physical abuse or those kind of situations, I definitely think that they need to take a step back and step away. If they can work towards reconciliation, that's great. But it's a hard walk. It's a very hard walk. On the one hand, we have arranged marriages, and you've talked at great length, I think quite well about how they can really build your holiness. But also in the West, we have our non-arranged marriages with our dating. When it comes to Christianity, which one do you think, or is there one that you think is better at building up that holiness? Does one form of marriage really help us better than another? Or are they both equal paths to the same destination? Yeah, that's a good question. And I I kind of thought about that yesterday. I think what I would say is, I think they both have a way to getting to the destiny, which is to be more Christ-like and to be more holy. I would say that arranged marriages probably amplify that tension of being, because we're all sojourners on this planet. And I think what an arranged marriage does is it definitely causes you to have a dependence on Christ a little earlier when problems arise versus falling back on a relationship which you've kind of always known, maybe, and that you can kind of be like, hey, you didn't behave this way six months ago when we were dating. Why are you behaving like this now? It's kind of like saying, you know, there's when, when you are a new creation in Christ, you put the old person away and you put the new person on. I would liken it to, I still remember when we got married and the following weekend, five days later, we had a reception in my husband's hometown and we, and we traveled by train for that. And so my mother-in-law's only expectation when I got off that train was that I needed to be wearing a, a beautiful silk sari and I would have to have some of my gold jewelry on, which is the chain which I got when I got married and flowers in my hair to signify to everybody in that small community that I was the new bride in this family. And that was important for all three daughters-in-law. So every one of us, when we got off the train, we were not dressed in our jeans and you know our t-shirt. We changed and we got off as a new bride. And we were expected to dress like a new bride for the rest of that week when we stayed there for the reception and, the, and, that, and that week. And so everybody who saw me, wherever we went outside, to the church, they knew that, oh, this is a new bride and she belongs to this family. So there was almost like a setting apart of this new person. 
And I find that in an arranged marriage, you do take on the identity of your husband's family and your husband's community added on to the last name, which you take on. So there's such a demarcation right away. Sometimes with dating and the Western kind of marriages, you you can't even make out if the bride is the new bride if you see her the following week or the following month, you know, because if you look at Hindus, especially, you can make out a new bride for a whole month because she will wear jewelry. Her Mangal Sutra will actually be covered in turmeric. So it'll be yellow and she will have all of the henna on her hands up to her elbows. So that takes about a month to go away with washing and stuff. So you can actually make out that she's a new bride. And so I have found that in an arranged marriage, there is that newness which comes with, you have a new identity. You're not the old person anymore. You're not just your parents' daughter. You're someone else's wife. And because you don't know this stranger that you've married, you kind of assume an identity which is partly his and partly yours. And it's a very communal kind of a thing. So there's that tension because you're always struggling with that tension. You want to be you, but you're also your husband's wife and you're also their daughter-in-law and that tension exists. Sometimes that is missing when you go through dating and a courtship and there's not that communal kind of a thinking. It's, it is a little bit more of an individualistic thing. Like, you know, I chose this person. I fell in love. You know, we, we met on a dating app and we fell in love and we're going to make each other husband and wife. Whereas in this, there's that communal thing where you are all a representative, you know, and so I kind of represent his family and vice versa. So that tension is what I think is missing. So I think the end goal of any marriage is to make us more like Christ. But I think with arranged marriages, this tension helps a little bit, whereas it kind of is missing in love, dating kind of a thing. You don't really have that a communal coming together and that you're like a representative of his family. You mentioned Hinduism. Have you noticed that there's a major difference or major differences between arranged marriage in Christian families and arranged marriage in non-Christian families in how that marriage plays itself out? I think times have really changed. India is extremely modern now. When we go back to India nowadays, we feel like old fogies because we're still living 20 years ago. Back when we got married, the majority of our friends, their marriages were fixed and arranged the same way. It was either through a family member, a grandparent, an uncle, an aunt. I have friends from college, undergrad, who got married in the final year of undergrad. You know, they'd, they'd finish their final exams and the week after that would be their marriage. So they were like barely 21, you know, completely new and so young. So it was done pretty much the same way 20 years ago. Things are changing a little bit more now. There are a lot more dating apps and matchmaking services, even in India. And so people do want to find the partner that's best suited to them. It's more modern, more sophisticated places where you work, what kind of background you come from. And there's a lot of intercaste and intercommunity marriages as well. People are a lot more open and broad-minded now. They don't necessarily stick to the same caste or the community. People are just, I think things are a little bit, a little more flexible and easier because parents are also more broad-minded and not so traditional in the way they arrange marriages because they want their kids to be happy and they want the marriage to be successful. If you're willing to talk about it, 
how do you talk to your kids about marriage? Do you push them one way or the other? That must be a very complicated topic. <laughs> uh, well, our second child is 16, so hasn't really come up that much. Our older child, our son, he's 20. And so we've definitely talked about it quite a bit in the last few years, you know, as he's moved off to college. And we haven't pushed them in one direction. We haven't told them that it's going to be arranged and there's no other way of doing it. But we have definitely shared with them the benefits of an arranged marriage. We've shared with them our story, their grandparents' stories, their uncles, their aunts. And so, uh, and they've seen plenty of successful marriages around them. So we've told them that there are benefits to us choosing someone who we think is suitable for them. We know your personality. We know what makes you tick. We know what are your strengths and your weaknesses. So we could find someone, you know, who might be a possible fit for you. But at the same time, we also know that they are growing up here. They're growing up in a different uh, culture, in a different environment, different communities, which has influenced them wherever they go to study. And so we are open to whatever comes their way. I often make fun of my son and I tell him, because he's always like, will I ever get a girlfriend? Because he's too busy trying to get through his classes. And you know, and then he's got friends who have girlfriends and he's like, I've got nobody to hang out with. And so I keep telling him that I'm praying that in the right time, God will bring your father and me a family friend who has this amazing daughter. And we are going to get to know this family really, really well. And through the process of us getting to know this family, you're going to get to meet this girl. And it's just all going to work in her favor and in your favor. So I just make fun by saying that that's my prayer, that we would find this person whom we know as really good family friends, and that they have this girl who would be a perfect match for you and you a perfect match for her. So it can be like a semi-arranged marriage, so to speak. You guys just meet and you fall in love, but we approve. It's just a way that I, I kind of pick at him by saying, that's, that's kind of what I'm, I'm praying for. So we haven't really stirred them one way or the other. We have asked them to really, really pray for their future spouse. And that's what we pray as well whenever we think of that. Thank you so much, Shireen. And does your podcast that you're thinking about, does it have a name yet? No, we're still working on the branding. So we're <laughs> open to all suggestions. We have to think a lot. I mean, the, the aim is to... If my friend and me can work on it in the next few months, the aim is to drop an episode August end or September. That's our aim. So for now, we are in the process of we have to buy a mic. We need to get a platform. We, we need to get some branding done. We need to get some image, some graphics, and some of those things done. But we're, we're kind of excited about it. I've told myself we'll give ourselves six months, six months and 12 episodes and see how it takes off. God willing, it'll take off. And what will the topic cover? It'll definitely be on the intersection of faith, culture, community, being an immigrant, being a third culture kid, because both of us have that in our background. And that is what we are planning to talk about. Just experiences of immigrants. If you've liked this discussion here, then make sure to check out Shireen Joseph and see where the podcast is at. Thank you so much, Shireen. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, John, do you know how long my parents knew each other before they were engaged? I do. And it's ridiculous. How long was it's it? 36 hours. Less. It was 24. It was 24. Gosh. It was 24 so that's hours. Not... It was the next day. 
that combines neither the freedom of dating nor the arranged precision and intentionality of an arranged marriage where your families come together to, to kind it's of just the worst see of what's both worlds. It's the worst of both worlds. It oh, is. Gosh. And yet here they are, 34 whatever years later. Yeah, but the ramifications of their decision were not worth the price of admission. The, the, the outcome of you, their spawn, is, is clearly indicative that this tree is not bearing healthy fruits. These clearly, are not healthy Only fruits. God's providence bringing them together so that I might be born. Well, it's, it's a perfect segue, though, to there is a sense that dating really isn't a terribly reliable creator of solid marriages either. I mean, your family, your parents happen to work out, but there, there is a certain sense that, you know, a lot of people in the West don't necessarily want an arranged marriage, but it's hard to date. And the, the social media side of it and Tinder and all of this stuff, and it can get you so exhausted that one day you just wake up and say, I'm just going to marry the next person I meet. And 24 hours later, your parents are married. Like, Yeah, because you have to make the most important decision of your life outside of following Jesus in your like 20s normally when you're dumb and stupid and yeah you're hot but my <laughs> goodness Maybe you're you dumb are. yeah but i mean even in your 30s who who like who in their 30s is really that mature either like even in your 40s, maybe when you're 70, you can get married in your 70s. That's when maybe you can make a decision and be trusted to make it. It's when you're 70. Wasn't Benjamin Button, the entire story, centered around the idea of we should age in reverse. We should start off when we're stupid, being ugly, and slowly age into our good looks. Yeah, the, the quote is we, and it, this is from F. Scott Fitzgerald, which is the basis for the movie, is... Life is lived forward, but can only be understood backward. That's from Kierkegaard. Is it? I think so. Wait, maybe F. Scott Fitzgerald is quoting Kierkegaard. I don't know. How dare you interrupt me, Seth? Or yeah, because I think the quotation was. I remember the quotation was a little bit different than anyway. We'll look it up afterward. Here, let's do it again because now I'm embarrassed because my son's named Soren. I can't be mistaken about this, Seth. Life must be lived forward. It's a Kierkegaard quote. It's first no! thing that pops up. Oh, that's embarrassing for a theology professor. Anyways, yeah, so I got the quote at least. I got the quote. Life must be lived forward, but can only be understood backward. And I think there is there's this sense that, you know, like with dating, we think we have we have the illusion that we're in control because we've picked this person. But even if you've known someone for years, you still don't really know who they are. There are depths of human persons that aren't revealed for decades. And people even change and evolve after they get married. So I think we, we've we tried to create the illusion of control and freedom and autonomy. And like, I've picked this person and I really know what I'm getting into. That's what we're trying to kind of cultivate with dating and dating culture. But I don't think it necessarily is something we actually have successfully achieved. The divorce rate clearly shows that our thinking as individuals about who we're going to pick doesn't tend to yield the best individual. So I see no reason why an arranged marriage by older people who know you better than you probably know yourself, at least in theory, wouldn't be a plausible alternative to what we're doing in the West right now. I would never trust my parents to pick my wife. <laughs> well, just got to get that in there. But it's a Mark Twain quotation. 
Oh, so neither of us are right. Well, I mean, I didn't have a claim on that. So to Mark Twain, he supposedly said that it's too bad the best parts of life is at the beginning and the worst part is at the end. The book, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, is written by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Yes, the quote that's what I thought. is from Mark Twain. Okay, right. there we go. That's the correct thing. Yeah, but on that point, yeah, everyone wakes up next to a stranger after five years when you're married. So the person you're marrying is not good. You're going to get someone completely different in five years. But what's interesting is she's like, well, at least with the arranged marriage, it forces you to be holy and self-sacrificial earlier on. So you don't get that illusion of, because you might fit together real well right at the beginning. And then three years down the road, they start to be a little annoying. And then five years down the road, it's just, who is this person that I'm waking yeah. up to every single day? But with arranged marriage, you start with that with day one. Yeah, there's no illusions of grandeur and no sense that like five years later that somehow some peak has been lost because you've known what the game is from the very beginning. You've seen the ugliness of the other person from the start because you didn't necessarily choose them. Though at the same time, she did have agency and had the final say in that. It was like my parents' relationship, except it was kind of forced upon her that she had to choose pretty quickly. The one date and then you got to choose. Yeah. And she, as long as she made herself clear that she's not doing the laundry yeah. or doing the dry cleaning. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, there's definitely from the Christian angle where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And I think in the West, we've often said where your heart is, then you'll put your treasure there. And we've got the order inverted where we think, oh, these romantic feelings that we have, if we have these towards this person, those will last forever. But actually, it takes hard work and devotion and discipline and sacrifice and if you're willing to make that commitment up front and you do that work, eventually those feelings will follow. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I, I think that's really, really interesting. We've inverted it in the West. We want the emotions first. And then based on that, we will or won't decide to commit. But when the emotions falter or we're having a bad month or a bad year or the romance is starting to die, then the commitment starts to waver. We've fallen out of love because we've inverted the order. We think that the action must be contingent upon the feeling. But arranged marriage is saying, no, the feeling will come if you do the action. That was that whole love dare thing that took over like a decade ago in evangelicalism. Oh gosh, fireproof. Yeah, fireproof. And, you yeah. know, make fun of the corny movie all you want. But the principle is 100% correct that where you invest time and effort, you eventually fall in love with. In the same way, if like a, an old nasty dog shows up on your front porch and you call the pound to get rid of it and they can't get there for a few days, you know, they're, they're tied up or they're closed and you like you give the dog a bath because you're sick <laughs> of the smell and you give him a haircut because he can't see. Yeah. So, and eventually by the time the pound gets there, you're just like, nah, it's fine. He can stay. <laughs> yeah no that's i mean that's the basis of our entire relationship seth is it, at first i saw a turd but then i saw that i could use you to fertilize the grass and you became like a garden because of my tender nurturing and by the way the dog analogy was a, a veiled reference to you oh yeah you love me like a puppy that is the greatest no. of all human loves the point was you needed a haircut whoa Okay, who sounds like their dad now? That's what that's the first thing your dad said to me when he met me. The boy needs Seriously? a haircut. Yeah, when Madison brought me home, your dad said, that boy needs a haircut. I just want to say in your relationship, I was the matchmaker. You were. And, and the fact that Madison's family was so on board with her marriage really did make a huge difference. Thank oh, you, Seth. Oh, yeah. Who you did occasionally that? Who? 
Even a broken clock is right twice a day, and you, sir, were right. My dad wanted you guys to be dating before Madison wanted you two to be dating. Yeah. He was pushing it. Well, I think so much of the discussion we came back to today was about the individual versus the collective. And in the West, everything's about the individual deciding. You know, it's about your autonomy and your freedom to choose. But I think a Christian perspective says, you know, the individual is probably an idiot, right? They're fallen, they're broken, and they're following their heart. But our hearts desire things that they shouldn't desire. Yeah. And the, there's a there's a helpful Eastern rebuke to this, which is, hey, the collective, the family structure was meant to help you see things that you're too dumb to see. And the, the family role in that is good. And obviously, if Madison had just, as an individual, decided who to marry, she never would have picked me. She had to be bullied by you guys to see the beauty right. that was before her eyes, to behold the glory that was me and my magnificent haired, beardless body. You didn't have a beard. The beard is new. Well, I, I, had, I had a spiritual beard. <laughs> I had a... An aura, a bearded aura, Seth. In addition to that, I feel like the East has a different view of marriage, just period, where it's not really about romantic love. You hope for it along the way, but it's about binding families together and having children and passing on to the next generation. And then love is kind of, we hope that comes along with that. And we really hope that that can be the binding force that creates that. But ultimately, this is about a larger social context that marriage is meant to serve. So even yeah. with the, the wisdom serving, we know what's better for you for love, but it's also, we know what's better for us collectively as a unit, as a nation, as an et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that is for marriage to happen between these two families to create kids who can grow up in a stable home with an extended family, et cetera. That has worked for thousands of years in more rural communities where whole generations are there. Grandma's there helping with the kids. The parents are there. Everyone's involved. And there's that support network to help you when things go wrong or where when there is abuse. But now with this move where everyone's moving to different places or moving to the cities, the, the marriages are disembedded from those collective communal contexts in which they once stood and made sense. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens in India as people begin to move away from their families more or move into the cities. And if this disembedding from the collective context in which arranged marriage made sense, if that begins to crumble a bit, because she was talking about how hard it was to get married and then move to America. So they were living in an arranged marriage in a context that wasn't designed for that marriage. It was a marriage decided by and arranged by a family, but then torn from that family context in which it made sense and where the family could actually support them. And so they, they, they ended up having to deal with it as individuals, which made it so much harder. Well, she did also say, at least she hinted at that India doesn't really do that as much anymore with dating apps and all those sorts of things. And she's talking about the modernization of India. That maybe marriage, arranged marriages are a thing of the past, even in India. And so, yeah. yeah, I mean, it is interesting. You know, it's funny. You know, we think about this as a sort of bygone thing. But what's interesting to me is even in the West, up until like the 1800s, arranged marriages were quite common. I kind of look at it with a bit of morbid curiosity that in the Wild West, whenever a husband would die at the husband's funeral, while the widow was still grieving, the town's men would be discussing on who would marry her next. And it, it sounds so awful, like at the funeral, 
But at the same time, it's like, if she doesn't get married, she's going to die or end up in the brothel. Like she needs a husband to, you know, farm the fields and take care of her kids and all, blah, blah, blah. Otherwise, you know, this is our social obligation to her. Which thankfully isn't the case today. Women have more opportunities and those types of things. But yeah. Well, like, that's only because of modern society. If, you know, go back yeah. to the Wild West and they're just and they, they isn't that. Yeah. yeah. It's just yeah. that thank, thank you technology and stuff. But yeah. So we, so it's, it's actually kind of a, a weird blessing that we don't have to worry about yeah. having kids so we go get old and die because they have no one to take care of us we have social safety nets you know it's a yeah. weird time we live in it definitely is and i feel like a huge part of the meta narrative driving this age that we live in is the idea that the point of life is to find your partner even if people don't explicitly believe in soulmates anymore they still seem to have that in the background and so there's this, this oh, sense yeah. that we need to find our romantic partner and that's the that's the goal of my life and if i can find that person then i will be whole and fulfilled and i just love what this indian or not i don't want to say indian or eastern as generalizations but what the perspective shireen shared with us brings to this is is a sense that maybe the point of your life isn't just to find your romantic partner and maybe Marriage and love don't need to be about finding perfect interlocking personalities, but just two people who are willing to sacrifice and put the other before them, and then they'll figure out the details and the personality issues as they go along. John, we have a billion dollar romantic film industry that you're just completely undermining right here. I think you owe them an apology. I thought you were about to say that you love me, Seth, even though we clash personality-wise. That will never happen on air. again for listening to the spiritually incorrect podcast if you like what you heard please consider subscribing and leaving us a five-star review we're an up-and-coming podcast and every little bit helps also consider joining our patreon page patreon sponsors have exclusive access to unaired episodes different kinds of merchandise the ability to suggest an episode and even an hour-long interview with jonathan and i and if you enjoyed shireen's interview we have an exclusive talk with her on our Patreon where we talk about other topics besides arranged marriage. Check it out at spirituallyincorrectpodcast.com and see what you're missing out on. Sound effects from zapsplat.com. Special thanks to Jordan Birch, whose song Starry Night provides the intro and outro for this podcast. You can hear more of his music on YouTube or Spotify.